Someone had said Pulitzer, and I don't even know when that happens. Now I know it's April 18th, but I didn't know before what time of year. So I called him up, and I said, what happened? And he said, Andy won the Pulitzer Prize. And I said, did I? And he said, am I the one telling you? <laughs> and he was. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome. This week's episode is one that we have truly been looking forward to. We are in awe of our guest and his work and the many literary gifts that he's given us readers and created iconic characters that stay with the readers for a very long time. It's certainly a highlight to be welcoming Andrew Sean Greer to the podcast. His newest book, Less is Lost, is out this week, and my favorite praise of the book comes from none other than Bonnie Garmus, author of the outstanding Lessons in Chemistry. She says, there is no better guide across America than Arthur Less, the bad gay whose engaging awkwardness and self-deprecation are tragically funny and hugely insightful. We should all be so lost, and I certainly agree. And I am Ron Block. And I am Christy Woodson Harvey. Andrew Sean Greer is the author of seven works of fiction. Greer has taught at a number of universities, including Stanford and the Iowa Writers Workshop, been a Today Show pick, a New York Public Library Coleman Center Fellow, a judge for the National Book Award, and a winner of the California Book Award and the New York Public Library Young Lions Award. He is the recipient of an NEA grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He hasn't done that much, but I'm glad we're going to kind of a slacker, here. right? <laughs> um, but he lives in San Francisco and Milan. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you guys for having me. What a great intro. I'm going to get my mom to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the highest praise in teach right Your there, mom so. must be really proud because, wow, that is yes. that is a lot. That is a, a lot of awards and amazing, amazing accolades. Okay, Ron, can I fangirl before we do questions or do you want me to wait? I'll fight you for it. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I have to tell you. So I got an advanced copy of Less. I don't even know how, like, you know, in I guess 2016 or so. And I was just obsessed with it. Like everywhere I went, I was talking about it. I was like, you guys, this book, this book, this book is so amazing. This book is so amazing. To the point that I actually like referred to it in one of my books because <laughs> I loved it so much. And so when it won the Pulitzer Prize, I was like, I knew it. I mean, I knew it. I knew it was going to. I just knew it. So <laughs> I've been a fan for a long time. And um, anyway, it's a great book. And we were so glad to see more of Arthur Less. Ron and I were, were pretty pumped about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. We There's a lot of texting going on there yeah. back and forth. Did you get to this part? So anyway, Andrew, what inspired you to return to one of literature's most beloved characters, Arthur Less? And my fangirl moment is like, he's absolutely my total literary crush. 
I love hearing that. Well, I have to tell you, I had not planned to. And and in fact, my agent, after I won the Pulitzer Prize, she said, no, don't think about writing a sequel. <laughs> she reads mine. And I was like, no, no, of course not. No, no. And I was I was writing another novel with other characters. And it was as often ha- happens when I start a novel. It was it was a disaster. About 100 pages in, I know if a novel is not working and I have to find another narrator, another way to tell it. It happened with Les. And I was like, if if only I had a pre-made ridiculous protagonist and elderly grumpy old writer I could send in a van somewhere, because that was kind of what the book was. And I was like, why am I being so hard on myself? You know, why don't I write what I want to? So I, I, I wrote my agent and I said, I'm sorry to say it is a sequel. <laughs> it's a follow-up. And I just did what I wanted because I, I think I wasn't done writing as about this character with this narrator. It seemed like a really good way for me to get to talk about something really hard, which was uh, uh, America, traveling across America, um, and all my thoughts about it. Oh, definitely. And I've heard from other writers that sometimes a character just doesn't let you go, even though you kind of think you're done with them and they kind of keep knocking in your head and moving around in there. So was that what kind of this was going on to? Yeah. I mean, in a smaller way, when you're writing a book and there's a character who shows up, who's just a joy to have on the page, you have to admit that that character has a larger role than you planned. And that was this in a larger way. Nice. So how much of Arthur is you? Well, I guess I'm wearing a blue suit. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I will say, I don't think of him as me, but I definitely use many parts of my life to 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 populate his. Uh, but I, I redistribute things in a way that anyone would recognize if they know a writer. It doesn't make sense that that Christmas tree is in that person's house, you know. Um, so I separate myself from him. He has he's he has my best and worst qualities. I would say, I think he's much more innocent and vulnerable and sweet than I am. And I think he's therefore Mm -hmm. also much more egotistical and blinded to his faults than I am. Definitely. That's a great summation there. So I am one of those people who often finds things really hilarious at really inappropriate times. And I think there are probably a lot of us like that out there. And that was certainly the case in this novel too. So I was actually like in the waiting room, waiting for a doctor's appointment and reading about the okay corral and like laughing out loud about just this moment of like real humor, you know, in this really kind of dark and depressing sort of time. But I think that's one of your real gifts is that you can inject such comedy and these sort of hilarious moments and into the tragic happenings of your stories and your characters' lives. So can you talk about that a little bit? Is that something that you set out to do? Does it just happen? Is it the voice of the character? Like, how does that come together for you? Well, it's, it's just a, a reversal of what I used to do as a much more serious writer, you know, carry a notebook and make notes. But I was at the funeral of a father of a dear friend. And I was the, the sort of Shabbos goy who cleaned all the, the plates and put, you know, put the casseroles in to heat up while they were sitting Shiva. And so I took notes because it was also hilarious what was <laughs> happening around me. And I was, I was aware of the necessity of 
something like a funeral, which is how less is lost opens that the extreme tension of it causes you to burst into laughter sometimes because it's unsustainable. And certainly my, my friend, <laughs> her brother got locked in the bathroom during the prayers and was texting, you know, it was, none of that is in this book, but the sense that, that you have to have a funny story to tell about something serious or else you'll never sort of process it is, is, is something I'm familiar with. And so that's what I do. I try to make a funny story about something awful. And there's some awful memories of mine I put in here to see if I could reverse them. Ooh, ooh, we can talk oh, offline. I don't know what you said. I love it because uh, it made me laugh at, in the far distant past. I was at a wedding with a friend, and it was a Russian Orthodox wedding. And so they brought out the crowns to put on their heads. And I th all I could think of was that old margarine commercial. And I looked at my friend next to me, and it was exactly boom. We were we lost it. We were done. So, <laughs> well, in fact, it was at that funeral that I gave a handkerchief to a woman crying, and I thought, "Oh, there goes my handkerchief. <laughs> I never get that back, do I?" Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so uh, personally, I found um, both Arthur books, um, a kindred spirit, really trying to find our place in the world. I'd find myself again laughing. I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I think it's like for readers to to happen on those is just phenomenal. And even crying at parts too. But what, what's been the strong reactions from your readers, good and the bad? Well, not many people have read Less is Lost yet or have contacted me about it on social media. But Less, I was shocked. Still, every day I get a message from someone saying, that they were at some crossroads in their life, usually much younger, not someone turning 50, but someone turning 25, which I think is a crisis, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember it, but uh, I think it is. So you did think I haven't done enough. I'm supposed to be going to dump I had down. a huge one at 25. Yeah. Yeah. No, 30. 30. Was 30. 40 was the hard, hardest one for me. 50 was fine. I wrote a novel about it and wrote a Pulitzer Prize. I was like, I'm 50 straight. <laughs> <laughs> 40 was rough. 60 is going to be its own thing, but I'll be fine. But, but everyone at some point that they feel lonely without a partner, that they haven't achieved enough, you know, all of these things that are, are very familiar to us all and that the book gave them a sense of hope or, or a joy about the future. That's great to hear. You know, that's actually such a great segue into my question, because I think we live in this world that's always encouraging us to kind of find ourselves, which I think is really kind of what you're speaking to and what your readers probably recognize about this novel. But, you know, we're supposed to be setting new goals and dreaming bigger and scheduling tighter and getting more done. And I think in a lot of ways, less is lost is kind of an antidote to that sort of thinking. Um, and in fact, this was this was Ron. This is a Ron quote, so I'm not going to steal this. But he said the tagline might be "Go get lost somewhere." It always does you good. And we were like, "Yes, tagline." Is this a lesson that you've had to learn in your own life? Is that something that you injected into this book? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. I am a big planner, raised by planners, by experimental chemists. You know, very. My calendar, I put everything, not just you guys, but that I'm going afterwards to buy a tux with a friend is all on my calendar, not room to get lost. But but I have learned it's the best way, especially when I was have been a travel writer for a while. I have certainly learned that and told friends when they're having some crisis, um, I'm like, this moment of trouble on your trip is the thing you will remember. You will remember how you overcame it. 
And that's the story you'll tell about the trip, not the, the Duomo in Florence, but, but your own story. So have a glass of champagne, conquer it, you know, take the bus, the wrong, you took the wrong bus. So follow it where it goes. And I try to do that, even though I'm, I, I was raised the other way. I love that. Set off on an adventure. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> it's tough. I, I, I remember once at a, at a, at a festival, I was, I was picking up a friend to drive back from it and someone had dosed her Kool-Aid with LSD and she was super high. And I was like, Oh no, what well, she had come down from it. She had, but she'd missed most of the festival, which is like a disaster. Right. And I said, what are, are you mad about it? She's like, Oh no, honey, you got to ride the trip you're on. I had a great time. <laughs> She's like, what can you do? You're on LSD. You've got to just do that. You're not going to the festival anymore. You're doing this. And she just went with it. And I thought, I wish I could be like that. Yeah, me too. I, w- I have too. friends that are just like, yeah, whatever. Like we were going, we're supposed to be on this trip abroad, like right before it, like, we knew the pandemic was coming. And I, I just couldn't go. Like, I just couldn't do it. And I remember calling my friend, like in the middle of the night being like, you have got to get home right now. They're going to, you know, you are going to be there forever. And she's like, well, if we are, we'll have a great time. And I'm like, I just have none of that. I have none of that. And I want that. So maybe I'll find it one day, maybe my next decade. (laughs) Yeah. I recommend a benzodiazepam. (laughs) A Xanax or a cocktail will get you in a better mood. Yeah. 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 Be careful, Christy. Next time we're together, I might dose you. No, no. <laughs> I know I'm mentioning too many drugs. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that I love and I, the readers everywhere love about your writing is how observational it is. I fell in love with Story of a Marriage. I mean, that was the first time I kind of was exposed. And even though it's a different kind of story, I think some some things transcend through your work, which is all very different. We time travel and things, like this, but now we're talking about less today. But Arthur always seems to not quite have a clue, and he's completely kind of unaware of the effect he has on others around him. And the narrator really kind of shows us the other side of that. Can you talk about creating him and creating this aspect of his personality? Well, I mean, it took a little while, but it was because I went the wrong way at first and less. And then I found this character who could be so guileless that... In fact, he was immune to a lot of, of things that would bother the rest of us. And then he's bothered by things that wouldn't bother the rest of us. And it's his sort of strength of his innocence that carries him through rather than, than a fall from innocence. It's a, a, a recommitment to it in, in a way in each book. And, and I also, I loved writing as a, a narrator who I think because of that innocence, because he's so sensitive without skin, He's paying attention to everything around him, which is a, a writer's state um, when we're in a good mood or in, a, in, a, in an attentive mood. Um, and that's it's a difficult way to be, but it's also joyous. It's an ecstatic state of being. I know that sounds grand for Arthur Less's state of being, but he, he pays attention to every single thing and sees it in some new way. And I, I found that really appealing. And I think you're right. In Story of a Marriage, it was about paying attention to my historical details and thinking of them as real and trying to hold and feel them instead of as history. And I felt the same way about the travel notes that I took, because everything in the book, my rule is always that I have to, I can only put in details that I wrote down in my notebook when I traveled, 
because I don't want to invent something about a foreign place like Mississippi. Because then I go into some cliche or fantasy or, you know, I want to write down what was really there. Oh, that comes across too. It really does. Oh, good. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. That is, yeah, it really does. I mean, it, it does really help create that sense of place. That's, that's really, really interesting little tidbit there. Um, maybe I should start doing that. So, so much of this book is about the many different facets of love and you pose the question, what is love? So can you talk about the exploration of that throughout the novel? Well, I don't have an answer for it, if that's what you're <laughs> wanting. That's why we you write these questions. explain it to us so that we can just... Yeah. Um, like, yeah, so right. We can put that out of our minds. We don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't, but I have, like many people, but not all writers, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in varieties of love. And if unless it was, it was partnerships and or hookups or long-term relationships or short-term ones, this one is much more about family love, his, his sisters in this one. We have memories of his mother and his father is a sort of mysterious character in it. And, um, but overarching it all is the sort of after the happy ending love of, you know, after the wedding, after the coming back together, how do you go on? Um, what are the new challenges there? And do you give up once the, the, the fire goes out a little? Yeah, you, you follow that so beautifully. And I, I really, facets is the perfect word because we see love in all its different forms throughout the book. And it's just like, oh, this, oh, this, oh, this. Oh, it's really, really hugely successful. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And I really wanted this time to give Freddie more time. And because it seemed um, weighted towards towards less is in the title of the book, you know, but I, I thought that's not how a relationship works. It's got to mm. be equal. Mm. No, his, oh, his narration is just so, so good. Good. But you have, uh, you've been publishing for a while, and, but since you started publishing and probably well before that, a lot of things that you've written, the worldview towards homosexuality has really evolved and, and it really had met with resistance. And, and, and I think we're kind of in another era of some trouble there, but can you share how your work might have also changed with it? And kudos to you for not putting in any stereotypes. That's a tough thing to do. It is a tough thing to do. I think it's why I resisted so long having a, a, a straightforward a gay male character, because it's, it's easy to fall into to cliches or stereotypes of all the wonderful books that, that have been written before. But of course, every time we have to do something brand new and I found it hard to do. Also, I was writing like time travel books and aging backwards books. And to also be gay just seemed like I couldn't do it all. <laughs> but I will say when I started out, there was a backlash in the 90s after the AIDS pandemic, where there were all these these gay publishing houses that were attached to the big houses and readers suddenly didn't want to read that stuff. And they all closed down. And there was a, a time right when I was beginning to publish where the general advice was don't tell people you're gay, don't write anything gay because it'll go in the gay section of the bookstore and, and no one else will ever read it and you won't get published in the New Yorker. You know, like there were, there were you know, Esquire refused to publish a gay story and, and people were fired over it. This is in the early 90s. Like it was not 
the time. So that's how I started writing, but it's certainly different now. And I think it's this amazing time where a book like Less, I would never have thought that like a gay love story would feel general to the population. Of course, it makes sense. I learned about love from Marquez, you know, that's a, those are, those are heterosexuals in love and love in the time of cholera, but I, I got it. I mean, it's the same lesson. And so what I hear from readers is that they don't have that barrier to it anymore. Certainly young readers, they connect immediately with these characters and it feels like a human condition. And that's really touching and it's great. (laughs) It really is. And, And it's so great for young gay people to see themselves in a book you know, that, that is so widely read and accepted and things. So it's just a kind of a whole change in the worldview. And the least last thing I expected was that I would become some sort of literary celebrity, but I get like recognized, you know, I'll be at a pool party in Palm Springs and I'll be recognized, <laughs> which um, authors don't get recognized much because we don't look like our book our author photo. <laughs> so I was like, I think I'm like a, like a, like a, for the moment, a literary gang celebrity. That, wow, cool. <laughs> That's the best compliment ever when someone says, oh my gosh, you look just like your author photo. I'm like, really? Oh, that's nice, that's isn't it? Nice. <laughs> I really don't, but thank you for saying that. No, I, that is, that's really awesome. Um, you made that sound really glamorous, like pool party in Palm Springs and, you know. Well, it's a pool. I don't know how much more glamorous it is than a pool anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, switching gears just a little, you are the master of a simile and readers need to read for themselves, uh, for, for the examples. But, um, one example you compare driving the van and less is lost to operating a martini shaker, which is just great. Oh my God. I love that. Um, so this, does this come naturally to you while you're writing or is it something that you have to like back up and think about a little bit? I think both. I think I have many faults as a writer, but that one, one strength is that I do have a sort of a simile headspace that I go to, but then I am tough on myself. I try to think, of not the first or second or third, but the, you know, nth one, the least likely one, which in my other books sometimes could get on the edge of, of, of odd, but in, unless I can go for the most outrageous simile and it's, it's the funniest one. So, you know, often when I'm teaching, I will tell them you have to think past, you know, you have to get past cliche to something fresh. You have to get the reader to, 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 to recognize it. Um, and that's hard to do. But another thing is to, I actually have driven a few um, of those Westphalia VW vans from the, from the sixties and seventies. And that is not an easy feat. Oh my God. (laughs) Have you driven those? No. (laughs) I came from a very real place. (laughs) (laughs) I could drive a tractor, but that's about it. That's pretty good. I've never done that. that. I can't drive a, a tractor. No, I mean, I probably could. I don't know. I mean, I've never tried, but I, maybe now I should add that to my list of things to do. Is it automatic attractor? No. Well, I'm sure they are now. They are now, but they were when I was young. Yeah, I I can drive like a really old school shift. That was part of my, like, it was one of the rules in my house growing up is that you couldn't, I couldn't like go on dates until I could drive a stick shift because 
you know, you never knew if you'd have to drive yourself home. That's what my mom always said. I mean, I think that's good advice. Don't depend on anyone else for the drive home. Yeah. 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 That's actually smart. Smart. (laughs) So you touched on this a little bit about driving the vans, but, um, you write so wonderfully. One of the other things, and I almost think like each of these things is its own character, but you write so well about place. Like you really draw the reader in to see exactly what your main character is seeing and the place and the people and the people, all the characters that come through. It's just um, unbelievable. But how do you research those? Where did you, where did you come up with the idea of where to place the stops along his journey? Unless it was rather random because I was a travel writer, so I would use where I was getting sent. Right. But I And I would also try to pitch things to in-flight airline magazines to try to get to Japan, for instance, because I couldn't afford to go there. But <laughs> this, this one was interesting. It was different. I got a Guggenheim grant in order to rent an RV. So I, it was paid for. And I, took a, I spent six weeks, which means I saw a lot more than Arthur Leff sees. He's only there for a few weeks. And I took loads and loads of notes in small towns. Like I said, tiny details you know, sitting alone in bars and writing down everything around me. And I used almost none of it. It was hard to pick. And so I combined some places in Arizona. He goes to a sort of commune and those are two different places that I visited that I, I in one place I visited twice to get just a, you know, a brief scene, but others came very easily. Like the bar he goes to in Alabama, I guess you'd call it a redneck bar is almost precisely my experience in that bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god open the door close the door goodbye yeah <laughs> i love those like little things that sneak in from real life like it's nothing big but it's just this little nod and especially when like a friend or someone will be like i remember that i was there or you know i remember that happened we have a lot of writers that listen to this podcast as you can imagine yeah. and i know that when i was trying to get published i had this idea that it was only hard for me that everybody else like knew someone, they had some inside scoop. They had, you know, they, they knew someone that I didn't know. And so it was easier for them. And of course now I know that isn't true, but I have read that even your Pulitzer prize winning less had a less than perfect road to publication. So can you tell us about the journey to getting that novel published? Yeah, it all looks, and we don't like to complain when things are have gone well, right? We don't want right. to go back and say, I had a harder time than you did because I, I definitely did it. And I, I did know people and, you know, in a way, or you, you, but there's those years of showing up at a cocktail party and being like, I guess I should try to meet people, something I'm not any good at. Mm. And less was a book like, for instance, in England, tried to sell it to first my publisher who turned it down and then 11 other publishers and they all turned it down and it did not come out in England until after I won the Pulitzer prize, you know, nor, nor many other countries, other countries. I had some foreign publishers before and they all dropped me with this book. And I would say it's not about the book. In fact, it was about the fact that I just wasn't selling well after, you know, five novels and they, you sort of drop off at a certain age. You know, if you write enough books and they're not bestsellers, they're not persuaded anymore. If you've got a debut novel to go all in. So (laughs) the prize sure helped. (laughs) I I bet. I bet that helped. So speaking of the prize, um, it seems amazing that a book about a struggling writer who so often feels the sense of failure 
wins the Pulitzer Prize. It's like the most just, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful moment. So can you tell us what was it like? What was the moment that you found out you won? Like, what did that, what, what happened and what did that feel like? Do you have a minute? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I'm assuming yes. that- <laughs> it was as absurd as anything you could make up. I was working at an artist residency outside of Florence in Italy. Okay. And I was working for an elderly baronessa who's still a great friend of mine. And she had an incontinent pug who would, <laughs> you might imagine. And I thought, this can't, we can't do this. Um, and in fact, Margaret Atwood was coming soon. And I thought, I have to train the dog to wear diapers. So it was the second day I'd sent away for diapers from China that had like rhinestones and, and rainbows on them. I thought the baronessa would think that was funny. And I was training the dog to wear the diapers at dinner or anytime, not in the bed. So I just finished my second training session and tucked the pug into bed. When I went back downstairs, I think it was like 10 at night. And my boyfriend showed me his phone and someone had said, congratulations to Andy. And he said, what is this? And I looked at my phone. We don't check our phones out there. Like there's not good cell service. So, and mine was all like fireworks, dancing lady, balloon, like not helpful you know, emoticons at all. And I saw that I had a lot of calls um, and they were all from members of the Shabon family, Michael Shabon and his wife and his four kids who I know really well. Wow. So Michael Shabon won, I think in 2000, I thought, because mm-hmm. someone had said Pulitzer and I don't even know when that happens. Now I know it's April 18th, but I didn't know before <laughs> what time of year. So I called him up and I said, what happened? And he said, Andy won the Pulitzer prize. And I said, did I? And he said, am I the one telling you? <laughs> and he was. Oh no, God. I didn't get a, or I wasn't aware of a call from a committee or from anything. I was hours late getting the news. So, like, I called my mother. She was already drunk in California. It, you know, opened the champagne. It was really, I was behind the news. It was wow. a great way. <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic that's story, though. Incredible. I can't imagine. That is just, that's super exciting. I love that. Yeah. I woke awesome. up the Baronessa and told her. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> if you're going to wake someone up for something, I think that is the moment that you wake them up. That seems like a good time. That's probably yeah. worth it. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and go back to um, your writing. You talk about the craft of writing. You're, you teach uh, students and things. What is your approach to the work? It's it's to try to, again, get past my own planning and try to be as 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 free and wandering as free as possible. It goes against my nature to outline and plan everything out. But I have learned over time that the less that I plan, the, the closer I get to the, the final product, even though it's a really upsetting process. And most importantly, I have learned that when I get feedback on it, for instance, unless I got a lot of feedback to, to change the ending, to not have a sort of little surprise at the end, because it, it was, it's too much. The reader already had a good time. Why risk it? And I have learned that when someone gives you a note like that to cut something, important that what you have to do is change everything else that that they're telling you they're like my friend daniel handler says he says you're the doctor they're the patient they can only tell you where it hurts you're the one who has the solution so i tell my students that because you have to keep it in mind that only you know how to fix the book only you have the thing in your head and so you have to be willing to to 
change everything else to get the thing you really want. You know, if there's a story about a marriage falling apart and there's a mermaid that shows up at the end, the whole class will say, cut the mermaid and it's great. And I'll be like, well, cut the mermaid. And then you have a mediocre story about a marriage kind of falling apart. The mermaid is the great part. Like, how can we make a story where a mermaid showing up is sublime instead of tacked on? I think that's the challenge is to make something new. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, So is, Unless is lost, did you already have an idea what the ending would be? No spoilers, because, again, it's amazing. But did you always know that that was the path you were going to end up on? Well, in my mind, there's a, in a way, there's two endings. There's a sort of climax, and there's a there's a motion yes. towards the end. Uh, the climax, I always knew, and that was another one. People told me that's that's just too improbable, and I was like, all right, no. I'll, I'll figure it out. Don't worry. But the ending I wrote, the first draft was a totally different actual final 10 pages of the book. And in rewriting it, I spent, I decided I was going to give a lot more time to Freddie. I thought that would be a really interesting move and sort of weight things towards him a lot more than, than less his realizations. And uh, that meant changing absolutely everything about the, the last chapter. I bet, I bet. So are we, are we, are we finished with Freddie and Arthur? I, I, yes, for the moment, I'm working on a new book that has nothing to do with it. (laughs) But I mean, I feel like I have some years left. I can sort of, you know, toss this towards the future. If I'm ever find myself again in a situation where there's a, there's something I have questions about and I can't figure out how to write about it. I have a way of writing about things um, and, and about me in a way and things I worry about that I could return to, you know, I think, and there's a lot of writers who, who do that. They return to the same narrators, even if it doesn't feel like the same story anymore. So we'll see, but I have to get, I have to move out. And this time my agent said, it's not another less novel. Is it? <laughs> and I thought, you're, yes, you're right. I know it's not. <laughs> it's not. Well, we look forward to that, whatever it is. So yeah. Oh, good. Early readers right here. Yes, we're available always, but we are, we were going to ask you for a writing tip, but the one that you already gave us is so good that I almost sort of hate to sully it by asking you for another one. And I was like, kind of a light bulb moment for, I'm like, yes, that's right. It's like, we are the only person that can actually figure out how to fix our book. That's just, that seems really obvious, but just the way that you put it is so true that sometimes what someone is is saying you need to change is, is not, is not the thing that you necessarily need to change. So I, I love that. And I just feel like that's the writing tip that, that we all need. <laughs> oh, good. I'm going to Daniel Handler. He's, he's really the one who gave me that tip and it was life changing for me. That's brilliant. I, love it. I bet. I bet. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so grateful that you were here. It's, it's truly been an honor to meet you and to read your work and, and to, I'd be able to gush about it a little bit. I know Christy joins me in that. And I know that our listeners listeners are going to be just so thrilled to hear this conversation. And they're going to be running out to get a copy of Less is Lost. So congratulations on the publication of it. And we can't wait to see what's coming next. Oh, thank you both. This was such great fun. It's great to talk to writers. Well, thank you for coming. This was wonderful. And we've really been looking forward to it. And I think it was even more fun than we thought it was going to be. So thanks. Exactly. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it'd be all blah, 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 blah. I thought it'd be all blah, blah, blah. But 
And thank you all for joining us on this episode. On behalf of the Fab Four, we're so grateful and constantly beside ourselves for all the support you give us each and every week. Please be sure to share us with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.